Let's turn to the old familiar scripture in Isaiah chapter 53. This is part of the culmination of Isaiah's revelation of the servant of Jehovah that begins back in chapter 40 and 42 and progresses in each chapter. And even after this chapter, it progresses on to his ultimate work in the kingdom as it's established upon the earth. But here we have some beautiful words. And we like to begin at the last three verses of the 42nd chapter because it seems to flow right into this. You'll, in, you'll notice that there are three verses five times that make units of thought that are here. And so the last three verses of the 42nd chapter give us the reaction of the nations as they view the Jehovah's servant and as they look upon him. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. He shall be exalted and extolled and be very high. As many were astonished at thee, his visage was so marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men, so shall he sprinkle many nations. The kings shall shut their mouths at him, for that which had not been told them shall they see, and that which they had not heard shall they consider." Now the next three verses, we have the confession of Israel as they look upon this one. Who believed, who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. And the next three verses give us Israel's realization of who he really was. Surely he hath borne our grief, and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. In the next three verses, we have the account of his death. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is dumb, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living, for the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. And now the last three verses, we have the Lord's promise of his blessing. 
Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see of the travail of his soul, and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he hath poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, and made intercession for the transgressors. Greetings, dear one, in the name of Jesus. Brother David has requested that we read in your presence, or you read with me, Second Corinthians chapter 5, fifth chapter of Second Corinthians. For we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle were dissolved, we have a building of God and a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this we groan, earnestly desiring to be clothed upon with our house which is from heaven, if so be that being clothed we shall not be found naked. For we that are in this tabernacle do groan, being burdened, not for that we would be unclothed, but clothed upon, that mortality might be swallowed up of life. Now he that hath wrought us for the selfsame thing is God, who also hath given unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore we are always confident, knowing that, whilst we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, I say, and willing rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wherefore we labor, that, whether we be present or absent, we may be accepted of him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or, or bad. Knowing, therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. For we come in not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye may have somewhat to answer them which glory in appearance, and not in heart. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge, that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them, and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, 
not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he that hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 Greetings to everyone this morning. It's a blessing to be here and to see your faces. To be with you for a few, few hours this weekend as we look into God's Word and hear again the story that means so much to us. And even as Brother West brought us to the fact that we need to be washed, that's the center of what we've come to to think about for today and tonight and tomorrow. The fact that Jesus Christ came and died and shed his blood and rose again for us. 157. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Salvation. Joyful sound, one of our hymns says. What a blessing it is that we can be saved from our sins. You know, in the world in which we live today, there's a lot of folks around us, I believe. You just listen to them. Have a pretty broad understanding of the fact that Jesus came into this world and died upon the cross. But for many of them, it means nothing. They don't understand what it really means or why. And it seems like that there are even in Christian Christendom broad misunderstandings about what the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross really means and what it was meant to do for us. Many are confused. And I think part of it is is there's a lot of terms that are used what we deal with with salvation. And so I guess what our thought is this morning, we'd like to go through some of those terms and explain them as best we can in an effort that brings things down to a common understanding that we can relate to. And the Lord being our helper, we're going to tackle that aspect, and I know there's probably maybe better ways to do it and better things to say, and you'll think of some that will make it even more clear possibly than what the things we have to offer. But we'd like to be as simple as we can. And you know, salvation all comes down to the fact that we all have sinned. That's the premise by which we must start. Every one of us have sinned, and that sin has incurred a debt. A debt to the God who made us, because he is the one who has established righteousness and he is righteous, and when that righteousness is transgressed and his law is transgressed, he calls it sin. And every one of us, as the, as the children of Adam, have partaken of that which is the wrong fruit, and we have sinned in our lives. Scripture is very clear. Sin creates a debt. And so that makes it a very simple thing as we contemplate 
the relationships of debtor and debtor and payments for debts and things like that to understand because God uses all those pictures in his word to help us understand our relationship with him. And sin as a that which creates a debt is that which must be satisfied with a payment. Just like any debt that we deal with in the in the world around us today. We understand those things. And we understand that when we charge something on a credit card, we have a debt that we owe and a payment must be made. In Ezekiel chapter 18 is very clear. It says, The soul that sins, it shall die. The soul that sins, it shall die. Now, will you notice a couple things with here? Sin is that debt which is attributed to the soul of man. It's not attributed to my hands or my head or my body. Sin is attributed to the soul of man. And the penalty for that sin is death. Death of the soul is what he's speaking about. And every man who has partaken of of that which is wrong and transgressed the law of God has created a relationship between him and his God whereby God has demands that for the payment of that debt, that soul will be needed to be accounted for. Romans tells us this way. The wages of sin is death. And we have all sinned. We have all earned our wages. And when the time comes, barring the return of the Lord for us first, every man, every one of us will die. And that is proof that God is serious about sin in our life. We cannot, we cannot bear that penalty of sin. If my soul dies, how can I live? And that's the dilemma that faces mankind and every man. And so if that sin needs to be paid for, and the soul is what's required to die for that sin, how can we live? And the answer is, we can't. We need to be saved from the effects of our sin. We need a salvation from the effects of our sin. And Matthew tells it, or Micah says it this way, and he recognizes it in the Old Testament. He says, Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression? Here's a thought. Should he give his own child in payment for his sin? Should I give the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? What's he saying? He's looking for something outside of himself that would be satisfactory to God in payment for that which we owe our Father. And of course, the answer to that is, is we understand. No, we can't give the fruit of our body. We can't give our children to answer for our sin. We can't give them as a sacrifice for sin. And so as we come to the very root of the word salvation, we look at it and we say, what does it mean? 
very simply. Salvation is the intervention of someone else to preserve a life. It's the same thing. If a man's drowning, he can't save himself. It takes the intervention of another person to lay him his hand to provide an opportunity for him to grasp it. And that life, of course, in our sense, is a life of, of ourselves. And it's in jeopardy. It's in jeopardy until such time as we can understand and have that one that would come and save us. And so the term salvation is the all-encompassing umbrella that acts over all the other terms that are involved since it was God who intervened in our behalf to save us from certain judgment and damnation in hell, which was the requirement for sin. And so to understand salvation, we'd like to go a little farther and break it down into some of its various parts and features, many of which you will recognize in the Word as you come across them. And some of them can either help or hinder our understanding of the work of the cross. And that's our goal as we can begin to understand what Jesus Christ has done for us. But remember, it's preeminently essential to understand that all aspects of salvation deal with the penalty and the debt of sin. Sin was that which ruined the whole race of mankind in Adam. And it's that which ruins each one of us individually as we need to come and stand before God. I think we all understand, even in the natural world, when there's an unsatisfied death, it brings a place of broken fellowship. It becomes an adversarial relationship for many in the natural world. If someone owes you a lot of money and they can't pay it or they won't pay it, you don't have good feelings towards them. It's difficult to have good feelings to someone who owes you something and can't or won't pay it. Why? Because you're going to bear the brunt of the hurt. Let's start with some of these terms. And I'm going to pick them kind of individually and deal with them individually. The first one that I'd like to start with is the word atonement. Now, throughout all the Old Testament, you know that all those sacrifices were brought in and the blood that was shed was brought in as an atonement for sin. And we've heard many times that and you know it too, the word atonement means to cover. And there's many instances in the Old Testament that. And that some have even said, well, that's not a New Testament word because it's used only a couple times in the New Testament. But I think you can get past that when you realize, how many times have you heard of a cover charge? How many times have you heard about someone covering the bill? That's what we're speaking about. It's atonement. And atonement is the payment that's required to satisfy the debt. The payment that's required to satisfy the debt. 
And the payment that's required is the price. The price that needs to be paid. And we know in our case, our Lord came and paid the price upon the cross when he shed his blood for us. And his blood was the price of our sin. It's that portion that covers our sin. Now, when you think about our own relationship and these kinds of things in regard to atonement, there's some other aspects that come in here. And one of those is guilt. Because guilt is the part in my conscience that recognizes I owe a debt. And when a man sins and does something that's wrong, it's in his own conscience that he understands and, and guilt comes into his conscience that he owes something, whether he can pay it or not, and he recognizes it. And we have a situation between men when one transgresses another and one feels guilty. We don't want to approach each other. It separates us. And we feel bad about it even sometimes when our own heart recognizes that guilt because it recognizes and acknowledges within me that there is something that needs satisfaction and payment before I can be made whole with another person. And that guilt is that also so that part of my life that recognizes that an atonement is needed in order for me to come and have fellowship with God. And so when there's the payment of the price, that is required, then that guilt goes away. The payment of the price, the atonement, is the transaction that satisfies the demands of moral justice. And every man has it written on his heart to a certain extent of the moral justice that God has given to the light of every man. Every man here doesn't need the Ten Commandments to tell him, Thou shalt not steal. He knows it internally. And even children know that internally as they grow up. They recognize certain aspects of moral justice that, that God has written when he has written it out for mankind. And when payment is made, the guilt goes away. And the satisfaction of clearing that debt is that which brings satisfaction and peace to the person. Penalty, the punitive justice for unpaid debts is that which God calls death when sin is the transgression of the law. There's another term that fits in here, kind of under this umbrella of atonement also. And it needs to be brought out at this point. We don't use it much in our day. It's a term, propitiation. We read about it in the scripture. But what that means is that God, who is angry for our sin, when that sin is paid for, he has been propitiated and he has been satisfied. Words we would use would be things like he's been appeased, although that isn't entirely so with God. But we understand that. He's been placated. He's been pacified. Why? 
because the debt against him has been paid when the blood has been applied to our sin. And the, the propitiation that God experiences, it's not something the sinner experiences, it's a portion that's towards God, that he understands when the sin is covered and the debt has been paid, as a creditor, God is satisfied. God is propitiated. And at that point, God agrees that there's no more requirement due. He's conciliated. And this is the Godward aspect of peace on his part that comes when the debt is paid. You know, brethren and sisters, man's religions around us recognize all of these things. All of these aspects. The place that man's religions are at fault is believing that man has the ability to make the payment and bring peace between him and God. And God will not be satisfied with the work of men. He will only be satisfied with the blood. Now to a man who has no blood that covers his sin, what does God require of him? His soul. His soul eternally in hell is that which will pay for his sin and bring to a place that God can then look on past that point. But man's religions refuse to listen to God when he says blood only is the currency that he will accept and payment for the debt of sin. So when we begin to apply some of these things to ourselves, we begin to understand that since me as a sinner have nothing that I can offer God, nothing to offer to pay Him, I cannot even give my own blood because then I'm dead. I'm lost. And if I die in that state, you see, another must be sought for that can intervene and take my place and pay the debt for me. You know, even in the world today, the person that, pay, that owes something to someone else, if another steps in and pays his debt, the creditor doesn't really care who pays. If you have traffic tickets and the judge says, you owe this much, Somebody else steps in and pays for you. He says, you're free to go. You see, God has in his mercy been willing to accept a substitute for my payment. In his mercy, God has been willing to accept the sacrifice and the, and the, the death of Jesus Christ in payment for my sins when I put my faith and my trust in Him. You see, the source of atonement, even in the world in which we live, is not significant. But blood is the only atonement that can be accepted for sin. And the sacrifice is only accepted as its blood is placed upon the altar. You know, even in the Old Testament, when all those lambs were brought, and they were brought into the courtyard of the tabernacle or into the temple. The fact of their presence there did nothing. It was when they were slain and the lamb was placed upon the altar that the blood was shed as evidence that its life had been given that God could be merciful 
and look upon the sinner as he, that life was forfeited in payment. And that's part of something that God had established clear back in Leviticus when he said the life of the flesh is in the blood and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your soul. It is the blood that maketh an atonement for the soul. Notice several things here. It's the blood that is shed, referencing a life has been given, a substitute life has been given for the life that I needed to give. And it's also the blood that was shed is that which makes an atonement, a payment, a payment, if you please, for my soul. Not for any other part of myself. It makes an atonement for the soul. An atonement for the sinner has always been that which has been made by another. The Old Testament speaks about that. When it says in the priest, and the priest was one who by virtue of his sanctity of his office became acceptable mediator between him and God. When the priest would make an atonement for him before the Lord, then the Lord says it shall be forgiven him for anything that he had done in trespassing. The sinner has nothing to pay. We're bankrupt before God. We need someone else that has wealth to step in and make that atonement for us. In the Old Testament, there was always that portion of the offering that was brought where the sinner brought it, and he always put his hands upon the head of the lamb or the sheep. And Leviticus gives that instruction when he says that he shall put his hand upon the head of the burnt offering, and it, the offered sacrifice, shall be accepted for him to make an atonement. And I think that that's a measure of our identification with that which was our sacrifice. When he put his hand upon the head, it's just like that he was, all of his sins was moving from himself into the one who was going to bear them. And then he is free because the Lord then accepts that sacrifice which was made for him. And we know that in the New Testament, we have the same words throughout there about our Lord Jesus, how he became the propitiation, the atonement that is made for us, that brought peace between us and God, that satisfied God. Romans chapter 3 says, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Romans chapter 5 tells us, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He came and made this offering for us when we didn't even know about it. We were yet sinners, and he in his mercy came. And Peter tells us that then for as much as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, and that's what he did. He came and he suffered for us in the flesh. And John tells us that he is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for all the sins of the world. And he goes on later in his epistle and he tells us that herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and he sent his son to be the propitiation 
for our sins. This brings us to the next term we'd like to look at. This is the term redemption. You've all heard it. We know what it is. But if atonement is the price for our salvation, redemption is the method by which the payment or the transaction is made to secure our salvation. Redemption involves the payment of sin for sin by the intervention of another. That's part of what we said salvation was for. And there's different terms that we can read about that go with it. We can speak about vicarious redemption, where we are removed from the punitive justice by the presence of a sin bearer in our place. We can read about the removal of debt that's levied upon the sinner by another. But redemption above all else means that we have been purchased. We have been bought back. You see, we couldn't buy ourselves back. We were in the bonds of iniquity in sin, had no ability to bring ourselves to freedom. And redemption is the peculiar aspect or the method by which God came and purchased us so that we now are his. And we have a couple parts of it. Remember this. Redemption is that which is always voluntary on the part of a redeemer. Always voluntary on the part of a redeemer. And beyond that, it does something else to us. It incurs a moral obligation on my part back to those one who redeemed me. You see, if I owe something, say I owe $10 million and can't pay it, and someone else comes to me and says, you owe this money, you need to be locked up in debtor's prison, you, can't, you owe these funds, and someone else steps up and says, I'll pay for you. When he does that, he redeems me from the, the curse and the penalty of an unpaid debt. But do you know what else he does? Who paid the money now? Someone else paid my $10 million. Now, my debt was originally over here. But now that it's been satisfied here, now I have a, a debt to this one. Because now he has paid for me and bought me. Now I have an obligation to him. I have an obligation to serve him, to work for him. And in a natural sense, I'd have an obligation to go to work for him in order to raise $10 million to pay him up for what he paid for me. I can't do that. And God in his mercy does the same thing when he redeems us. He buys us out of our condition and brings us to himself. And that begins a relationship now of my obligation to my Father in heaven because he has provided that for me that has enabled me to be free from my sin. So you see, redemption for the sinner must always be that of the part of another party who is willing and able to pay the debt that's there. And since blood is the only 
redemptive price that's acceptable for sin, it took the blood of Jesus to redeem us, to save us by redemption. And He bought us, and now, why does the Scripture say we're His? He purchased us. He bought us. And now my obligation is entirely to Him to live for Him, to serve Him. And so it is, as we think about it. In the Old Testament, the Lord spoke to Israel that way, and they said, He said, because the Lord loved you, and because He would keep the oath which He had sworn to your fathers, hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand from Egypt, He's speaking about, and redeemed you out of the house of bondmen from the hand of Pharaoh. And when we get to the New Testament, we see the same thing as it applies to us. For as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish and without spot. And so there's terms and words that go back all through the Old Testament to teach us what redemption's like. And the beautiful example is that when the Lord brought the children of Israel out of Egypt under the blood of the Passover lamb. And as a Passover, remember, they were slaves in Egypt, but as the Passover was offered, that is the picture of redemption in their day. Now, don't confuse the picture of the Passover, which is a picture of redemption, with a picture of all the other offerings that were offered after the Lord gave them to Moses upon Mount Sinai. They have a different purpose. But the picture for redemption is that of the Passover. And this brings us around to another term, and we've used it already this morning. It's a term of sacrifice. Sacrifice. You see, if atonement is the price that needs to be paid, And if redemption is the method by which it is paid, then the sacrifice is the means, the actual money, the legal tender that was required. And a sacrifice is very simple. It's something that is forfeited, something that is given on the part of one to attain to the benefit of another. I can give a sacrifice if I give my bank account to you. It would be a sacrifice on my part for your benefit, whatever was there. And we understand those kinds of things. Seldom do we understand or see an animal sacrifice, but God in his mercy had said that he would accept that as a token of their faith of what they expected to see when God himself would provide the lamb. But sacrifice is that which involves a forfeiture of life. And that forfeiture of life was what was required as payment for sin. Remember, the soul that sins, it shall die. The penalty was death to the soul. And a substitute, whether it's a lamb or whether it's our Savior, is that which bears my sin and my death. And the life that is acceptable to pay that debt by dying is the gifting of all that one has for himself. And our Lord came and he gave all of himself, all that he had when he died. 
And that lamb that was put upon the altar gave all of itself when it died. There was nothing more to give. I think you could probably, even in our day, look at some other terms that we see around. You know, if you have a court case and there's a penalty laid upon you, what do you call it? Generally, it's called bail. If you get a traffic ticket, you go to court and they'll tell you the bail is X number of dollars. And when you pay it, you forfeit it. And it is there that you are then clear with the law. And the law holds nothing more against you. You've paid your duty to the law. But the payment for our life, our life, when that's what's required of us, required the payment of the life of the Son of God. And Christ took upon us, took upon himself our sins. He took our sins upon himself, and he bore them to the cross. Peter says it very clearly. He says, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness by whose stripes you're healed. And I think we see all aspects of things here as we begin to think about that. Jesus for our sins in his body. And he took them to the cross and he died there in payment for our sins. And Peter goes on and he says that we being dead to sin. What's he saying? He's saying we have an obligation back to him. If he took our sins, and he made us righteous, it is necessary then that we serve him willingly and without, with joy, because now we are free from the burden of that sin. And once again, this part of things, when we talk about sacrifice, this is part and place where men get their works involved as an attempt and introduce on their part, to supply the legal tender to pay the debt. You see, God says he won't accept it. Blood is the only legal tender for the debt of our sin. For the life is in the blood. And when men try to offer their own good works to God, they're in essence trying to bribe the judge. Because even in our day, if a man's brought before a court and he stands there and he admits that he's guilty and then he turns around to the judge and says, but judge, I've done this and this and this. It's good. Doesn't that count? The judge says, no way. You're judged upon your crime and you pay the penalty for your crime. It's the same thing as when the officer catches us for speeding and we tell him, well, officer, all the rest of the day I drove the speed limit. What does he say? He laughs at us. He, and to try and bribe the judge of all eternity by giving him my good works is that which is going to only condemn me that much more. And so it is when we're identified with the lamb that was slain. Just like the 
The Old Testament worshiper would come before the priest and put his hands upon the head of the, of the priest, or the burnt offering. And he said, it shall be accepted of him to make an atonement. And this one writer to the Hebrews tells us, this one, this one, this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sin, sat down on the right hand of God forever. And we are reconciled to God because of his purchase of us and bringing us to himself. Now, if atonement is the price and redemption is the method, and if sacrifice is the means by which it accomplishes, reconciliation with God is the result of what all this means. Reconciliation. That's bringing two parties together that were at odds before. They were enemies before. That means there's peace between them. And just as we, when we have a debt that we cannot satisfy with another man, brings a barrier between us, so it is that when there's sin in my life, there's a barrier between me and God. But when it is then that the blood is applied, the confession is made, and I stand before him in faith under the blood of Jesus, and I know that my sins are washed away, then it is that I stand before him clean, and he has no more argument against me, and there's peace between us. And this peace is the result of God's work in redemption when he gave himself as a sacrifice to provide the atonement for our salvation. And reconciliation be, involves peace manward and from man's point of view to God involves peace where propitiation was that which enables God to look back upon us with peace because therein he is satisfied with the debt that's been paid. Reconciliation is the reason we're reconciled to God. It's the work upon the cross. And Colossians tells us clearly, having made peace through his blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. Now, I'm sure that you can take some of these thoughts and expand them. And when you read these words in the New Testament in particular, take your time to see what the writers are teaching us about that particular aspect of things when they use these words in the New Testament. And these terms reflect some some of the different aspects of our Savior's work upon the cross. They relate to how we as sinners, relate to a holy God and what has been required to meet a just and holy God and how God can be free and gracious to accept of us who are sinners. They describe the sin of man and God's method for dealing with it and from different perspectives, perhaps. But in any case, they bring us to a place of understanding of what God has done with us. Do you notice, once again, not any one of these terms has anything to do 
with a work by man. Man's work is limited to what Jesus said when he answered those who asked him, and he said, This is the work of God that ye believe on him whom he has sent. We must believe it. We must have faith. And when we do and we step out in that faith, then it is that God will apply the blood of the cross to cover our sin and bring us into a relationship of peace with Him. And confusion results so often and leads to trouble. Sometimes even when we get farther and we say, well, who did Jesus die for? Did he die for me? Yes, he did. Did he die for the world? Yes, he did. And we start wondering, how do these things work? And so I'd like to take just a few moments and deal with that question. Very simply, who did Jesus die for? Did he die for everyone? Or did he die just for me? Did he die for those who accept him? And I'd like to do it this way. I'd like to give you an illustration. And I know it's kind of homely, but it helps me out to understand. Because there's two kinds of sin that are dealt with in the Bible, in the New Testament. There's that which we call original sin, which came from Adam into the race of man, which we all inherit. And then there's personal sin. There's that which I did. Let's look at these two things. Let's suppose that God had a fruit garden in Eden. And he had a fruit stand that he set out there in Eden. And he gave away much fruit. And when Adam came along, he says, Adam, you can have all of this that you choose. But there's some here that I have a price on. I have a price on some of this. And some of this is high price, Adam. You can have whatever you want out of this fruit stand. But here's something that's high price. And one particular fruit had a very high price. The cost, if you ate it, was your life. The cost was your life. And you know, Adam comes along and he browses among this fruit. And he recognized that there was a price on part of it, but it all looked good. And he should have decided that this one over here was more than he had ability to pay for. More than he could afford. But he didn't. And so Adam took and sampled it and ate it. And God said, Pay me. Pay me. Adam says, I can't. I can't. And God says, you knew the price, Adam, and you chose that fruit, and I require you to pay. And no accounts are written off to bad debts. You owe me. And Adam pleaded, and he said, be patient with me. I'll try to pay. Well, you know, 900 years passed and Adam died. And God says, Adam didn't pay me. The debt is still owed. 
and now it lapses into Adam's estate. One of his children must pay me. Don't we find that even in our day? If there's a debt on the part of one who passes away, it passes into his estate and somehow needs to be satisfied. Hopefully there's assets there to satisfy it, but ultimately it passes into his estate. And the debt for Adam's sin passed into his estate. And Seth came along and he died. He couldn't pay. And Noah couldn't pay, and Shem couldn't pay, and Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, none of them could pay. And on down the line, Boaz, and Obed, and Jesse, and David, they couldn't pay. And finally it comes clear on down. Melchi, Levi, Mathat, Heli, Joseph. None of them could pay but Jesus. But Jesus, the Son of Man, could pay, and he did pay. Peter said it this way, He did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. He gave his life a ransom for many. Only a man that had not sinned after Adam's sin was the one that could pay. And John tells us for that reason he is the propitiation. He is the atonement. He is the payment, the satisfaction to God for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. What's he talking about when he says the sins of the whole world? He's talking about the portion of death that fell from Adam into the race of mankind. You say, well, didn't all the others give their lives too? Yes, they all died. Didn't they pay their debt by their death? No. They weren't a perfect man. You see, the death penalty involved was more than the death of the body. The death of the penalty that was involved for a sinful man to give up his soul would be lost in eternity. And this is evidence to us that when we read Isaiah 53, that Jesus' death was much more than a physical death. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see the travail of his soul and be satisfied. He hath poured out his soul unto death. Brethren and sisters, we have no comprehension of what that was involved when our Lord died upon the cross. But now God is satisfied. God is satisfied. You see, a righteous man has given his soul in payment for Adam's sin. And the debt of Adam is no longer lingering in the race of men. It's paid. It's satisfied. And that's why Paul can say in this chapter here that was read today that God was in Christ reconciling the world, reconciling mankind to himself. Not imputing, not accounting, not numbering, not reckoning their trespasses unto them. What's he speaking about? He's speaking about the portion that hung over the race of mankind through Adam's sin until the Lord Jesus came and removed that stigma from our race. And we as sons of Adam, we no longer risk dying an eternal death for the sin of Adam. 
We no longer risk dying a death for the sin of Adam. This is the glorious message that we are given, that we are given the word of reconciliation, the good news, and the gospel that we preach to the world. And the result of it, God can now be gracious to the race of men, sinners and all, and continue to send his reign upon the just and the unjust. That's how God can do that. But there still remains a problem. There still remains a problem. Even though the sin of Adam has been taken care of by the by the blood of Jesus upon the cross, the problem is that every one of us has sinned individually as well. You see, now we're not concerned about the sin of Adam. I'm concerned about my sin. I'm concerned about my sin. And the personal guilt now is accounted to me by the knowledge of the transgression of the law. I have sinned. I have transgressed the law. I have done things I shouldn't and thought things I shouldn't. I am a sinner. Not anymore because Adam was a sinner, although I inherited his nature. But God won't account, hold me accountable for Adam's sin. He'll hold me accountable for my own sin. And the Ten Commandments that were given early in Israel's history are those things that define and make known personal sin and make each one responsible for himself. And that's why in Romans we can say, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And so, let's take a look at that verse that was read to us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. Because this is a part of things that influence and refer to me personally. The apostle says here, we're ambassadors for Christ in verse 20. He pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now this is a little bit different. Because now when it speaks about he hath been made sin for us who knew no sin, this is dealing with Jesus Christ and his relationship and bearing my sin in his body like Peter spoke about. You see, every man has sinned. And it doesn't take a, take a law to transgress to be a sinner in the sense that every one of us has it in our conscience. We don't have to have a a law outside of us saying, thou shalt not do this. That's what the Old Testament did. But now every man has that knowledge within himself. The Scripture says that that light is within every man. And Romans tells us, nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after Adam's sin, who is a figure of him that was to come. And John tells us, if we say we have not sinned, We make him a liar and his word is not in us. We all have sinned. And now, each man stands or falls at the judgment of God 
based upon the debt of his own personal sin, those debts that we have incurred against God. Adam's sin isn't involved in this accounting, in this judgment. Adam's debt's been paid. It's been satisfied. But God has said to each one of us as individuals now, pay me for the fruit that we have taken and eaten. And the debt is now due from each one of us. And the answer is very simple. We throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. I can't pay. I can't pay. And if we have our faith in the Lord Jesus, in that which he has accomplished, we have hope because we have someone who has stepped up to pay for us. We have a Redeemer. And that's where the gospel comes in. The gospel by which we're saved. Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again the third day and was seen by many others. Jesus Christ is our Savior. He's the one who has paid for our sins. He's the one who stood in our place. I belonged on that cross. You belonged on that cross. And Jesus was the one who bore our sin on that cross. And even though Galatians says that Scripture has included that all are under sin, it's done that for the reason that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to all them who believe. And that promise by faith in Christ is that which we rest in today as we come at this time. For He hath made Him to be sin for us. A beautiful picture. Take all the the, uh, the Old Testament pictures of the sacrifices that were offered and translate them into the Lamb of God that came to take away the sin of the world and to take away my sin that we might be made what the righteousness of God in Him. Brethren and sisters, that's something that's the other side of the picture. You see, this verse has two sides. He hath made him to be sin for us. And then comes the beautiful part, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. You know, when a man trusts the ability of God and imputes to God or accounts to him or believes that God is able to raise him up just like Abraham believed that God was able to raise up Isaac. Therefore, he was willing to slay him. When the man believes him able, that man will move out on what he has determined in his mind to be true. And it's the same for us. When we believe that God has borne our sin, then it is that we are able and we know that God is able, then we trust in Him, move out on our faith, in faithfulness, in obedience, to do what He says, not only just because we owe Him everything, but because of what He has done for us and His graciousness to us. And in a similar fashion, when God accounts righteousness to a man because of His faith, because he believes like Abraham then, 
then God also moves out on that same truth that he has determined to be true in the case of the man, just as he was when he offered his covenant to Abraham and he placed Abraham in a secure position and a relationship with him whereby he became friends with God. And all of these transactions, you can speak about them in different ways, whether they be imputed or accounted or reckoned, it all means the same thing. But don't forget, these things all took place in the mind of God. And they take place in our mind when we believe and we trust. It's not in what we do, but it affects what we do. Because if we believe these things to be true, then we move out in faith corresponding to what God has promised, and we obey Him and serve Him. Now, I think when you think back about Isaiah chapter 53, I think that you realize that it primarily has in view the aspect of our redemption that deals with a personal redemption. It's not so much speaking about that wherein Adam's sin was covered. That's perhaps there too. But when the prophet says, surely he hath borne our griefs, that's my griefs. That's my griefs. Please carry my sorrows. Those are my sorrows. And don't forget, brethren and sisters, griefs and sorrows in this world come because of sin. They're the end result in a natural sense of sin in the race of men. And all the things you look about us in this world is chaotic. All the pain and the suffering that's there and the dissonance between man and God is there because of sin. And Jesus Christ came and he bore our grief and he carried our sorrows. And even though we at that time didn't esteem him, the, the prophet says, we thought, we thought it was God was, was, was paying him for his own sins. We thought he was smitten of God and afflicted. We thought it was because he was a sinner. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. My transgressions. My iniquities. And the chastisement of my peace. The chastisement. The payment and the penalty. The blood of Jesus Christ that was the atoning value that made me free before God is that which made peace for me. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. And then the rest of that chapter at the end of it seems so marvelous. Can you imagine? Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. Can you imagine how God the Father in heaven could look down upon the scene upon the cross and be pleased with it when he shall make his soul an offering for sin. Something again we have no comprehension of what that was. He shall see of the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. The debt of sin has been covered. There's no more enmity between us and our Father. 
and by his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Peter says, who his own self bore our sins and the tree. So when you think back to the Passover in Egypt, and you know, we're not going to celebrate the Passover tonight. But when we sit around the communion table tonight, there's much there that has its roots in the Passover that was in Egypt. The blood that was shed and what it meant was something that was important. You remember in Egypt, you remember what they did? After the Passover lamb was slain, they put the blood upon the doorposts. And the holiness and purity of the sacrifice, as it represented the very righteous and holy character of God, was imparted to those who went in that door and stayed inside during that terrible night. And what did they do that night? They feasted on the lamb. They partook of the lamb. And it's for us, as we partake of his body and of his blood, it's by remaining inside that protected sphere Wherein the blood is on the doorpost, and that which and it's a temple of of His body upon the cross, and as we feast on Him, then it is that believers are empowered, as even that was a foreshadowing in the days of Egypt, of the forecoming of the Holy Spirit within the hearts of believers. And they went that night in the power of that meat for days in the desert before they needed more sustenance. Oh, I know they took some things with them from Egypt. But when they left, after they had been saved by the blood and feasted on the lamb, that gave them a power where the Scripture says they moved day and night. God was with them day and night as they moved out from Egypt. And then finally when they crossed the Red Sea, Egypt was forever behind them. And may it be so for us that as we partake this evening, that we partake in our own way of that Lamb that represents the holy character of God and the blood that has shed. And may it be that which empowers us to move forward in days ahead to share his gospel with those around us. You see, Scripture teaches that both aspects of sin were satisfied upon the cross. The sin of the world, the sin of the sinner. And we are given a message that the world needs that peace is available and that all those who trust in Him to bear their sins will recognize that they stand under the umbrella of salvation that God has provided for them. For the love of Christ constraineth us because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. 
and that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for him and rose again. Wherefore henceforth know we no man after the flesh? Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. He's a new creature. Old things are passed away. They're behind. And all things are become new. And all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. He's given us something to speak about. He's given us the ministry of reconciliation. The world needs to know about that. And that's what he says, that ministry of reconciliation, to wit, this is what it is, God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us. He's given unto us that same word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. God has beseeched you by the Apostle Paul, pleaded with you, we pray you in Christ's stead, in his place, be ye reconciled to God. For he hath made him sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God with him, in him. We have a wonderful heritage in the cross. That's where our heritage is. And that's the message we have today. Tomorrow, whatever the days the Lord give us, may the Lord bless you as we seek to serve and follow him.